Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. As we come to the end of this year and come to this Christmas season, how do you feel about this season? I mean, it's been a rough year for us, particularly in Melbourne. You know, with the constant lockdowns and even lockdowns last year as well, but I think we felt it even more this year as restrictions and and just life was so not normal. And as things are opening up and there's some kind of normalcy and as we come into this Christmas season, what are you thinking about? How do you feel? Maybe you are just tired. And you're thinking, oh, you know, this is the time to just take time off and relax and maybe even thinking, you know, maybe even relax from God. Or maybe you're just plagued by all the injustice and the sin that you've seen around. And even over the last few months uh, uh, about injustice on so many different levels. And you're just fed up and disheartened. Or maybe you're thinking, oh, I know Christmas season, that's when... You know, the world around me, they just overindulge and they, they delve into sin even more. So I, I'm just so put off by all this. Or maybe all is well with you. And you've got the right perspective. You know, no matter where you're at this morning, whether you're sad, whether you're discouraged, whether you're apathetic, or you're joyful, I pray that as we look at this passage, as we look at Mary's joyful song of praise, it'll be cause for you to be joyful as well in this season. That it'll remind you what this season is about that it will remind you of who Jesus is and what he has done and what he is going to do. And I pray that as a result, this season you would make it about a celebration of Jesus, of making much of him. You know, last week we looked at verses 26 to 36. And we saw of how the angel Gabriel had come to uh, this young virgin named Mary, who was engaged to a young man named Joseph. And she lived in, out in Whoop Whoop, in Nazareth, out in the outskirts, in a no-name place, and she was this no-name girl. And yet the angel comes to her 
and tells her how she has been shown grace by God and how she will conceive in her womb a son, a son who she'll call Jesus, the one who will come to save mankind, the one who is greater than anyone, the one who is God himself in human flesh, the one who was promised on, who is a descendant from David, the one who is coming to establish his forever kingdom. Mary, you're going to have that child. And we saw last week of how Mary didn't doubt, Mary believed But Mary asked the question, but how? Like, I'm a virgin. I have not had any relations with a man. How is it that I will be pregnant? I mean, isn't that humanly impossible? And God reveals to her that the Holy Spirit would do a mighty work in her and bring about the, the birth of the conception of this child, and this, this child himself would be God in human flesh. And we saw how God even pointed to the fact that her relative, Elizabeth, a woman who is much, much older to her, a woman who is probably around her 70s or so, who was barren all her life, and God worked in her life, and she is now pregnant, and God points in that direction. And and we saw how Mary then uh, submits to the Lord and says, I take you at your word. Now, verses 39 to 45, I'm not going to do a full exposition through that, but let me just run through that just to explain the context as we, get in, as we focus in on verses 46 to 55. So the angel has just said this and pointed her in the direction of her older cousin, Elizabeth. Now, her cousin, Elizabeth, stays quite a bit far away in a town in Judah. And in those days, you know, there's no phones, there's no internet, there's no, uh, you, you know, none of the modern technological things that we have right now. So if you had to meet someone, talk to someone, you'd have to physically go there. So in verse 39, it says, Mary You know, in haste, she gets up from there and and goes into the hill country to the town in Judah, and she enters the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, mind you, this, this child that Elizabeth had in her, this baby that Elizabeth had in her, was none other than who we know as John the Baptist. John the Baptist was going to be the forerunner, the one who would prepare the way for the Messiah, the one who would preach about the Messiah is coming right now. He's going to come right now. That was his job. 
So what Elizabeth would have understood is that if this is John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, then the Messiah is not far behind. And think of Mary at this point, why she's hurrying to uh, Zechariah's house, to Elizabeth's house. I mean, how is she going to explain this to someone? She's a young 13-year-old girl around that age. And she's going to say, oh, oh, you know what? The angel came to me and the Holy Spirit, God, somehow miraculously gave me this conception out of wedlock. Who's going to believe her? So she rushes to her relative Elizabeth because she knows God has done a miraculous work in Elizabeth's life. And in a sense, get some sort of confirmation, yes, that God is doing it. Not so much because of doubt, but just for extra assurance. And God has pointed her in that direction through the angel Gabriel. And so she goes and sees Elizabeth. The first confirmation she has, yes, this, this older lady, a lady probably in her 70s, she's pregnant. This lady who's been barren all her life is pregnant. God's word is true. Here, right in front of me, Elizabeth is pregnant. And if that wasn't enough, she simply greets Elizabeth. And as she greets Elizabeth, it says that the baby inside of Elizabeth, baby John the Baptist, leaps with joy. He moves around. Now, you know, Elizabeth is about six months pregnant now. And you'd say, yeah, well, about that time, you know, babies in their mother's womb, they move around. What's so special about that? Well, here, we know that this is the work of the Holy Spirit. Because previously, it was told that this baby, John the Baptist, would be filled with the Holy Spirit even in the womb. And you could almost say that John the Baptist has started his ministry already. Because he, he hears Mary in the womb of Elizabeth. And he's jumping with joy, pointing, the Messiah, the Messiah, the Messiah. And he's, he's here, he's going to come. He started his ministry already in the womb as he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And Mary being filled with the Holy Spirit can also discern, this is not just the baby moving around. This is the baby confirming that you have child, young Mary, and you have the Messiah. You are pregnant with the Messiah. Oh, what assurance this would have brought Mary about what God was doing, that his word was true and she's full of joy now and she bursts into a song 
And that's the song that we read in verses 46 through to 55. Now, a couple of things about this song that Mary is singing. You know, firstly, this is famously known as the Magnificat. Now, that's just a Latin term. It's taken from the Latin translation of the uh, New Testament where, you know, in that first verse 46, it says, my soul magnifies. So in the, in the Latin Bible, that's the first word that's there in this song. So it's famously known as Mary's Magnificat. And what's interesting about this song of Mary is that it, it is full of language from the Old Testament. It bears a lot of resemblance to Hannah's prayer that we read this morning, as Nish read that to us this morning. It bears resemblance to Psalm 113. And then even individually, you know, there's bits from Genesis and Deuteronomy and other Psalms and even from the prophets. And here's what that means. That Mary is filled with the word of God. That the word of God dwells within Mary richly. And I want you to think about her again. I mean, she's a 13-year-old girl. A young girl. She doesn't have the written Bible with her. No, in those days, they would go to the synagogue and they would hear the word of God uh, read out loud. They didn't have personal copies of the Bible. So this young girl has got this, you know, has treasured the word of God in her heart. She's memorized it. She's, she's full of it. And it's not just memory in itself. It's not just intellectual knowledge because when all these things that she's seeing God is doing, she's bursting out into song. She's, she's rejoicing. It's, it's a very real thing, her relationship with the Lord. So let's just look at Mary's song now. Mary's joyful song of praise. And I pray that it would also cause you to be joyful in the Lord this Christmas season. As we look at just broadly two ways in which Mary joyfully praises the Lord. In verses 46 to 49... She reflects on who God is and his dealings with her personally. And that gives her much joy and causes her to praise God. And then in verses 50 through to 55, she reflects on who God is and his dealings with his people throughout all time. In verses 50 to 55. And that also causes her to joyfully praise God. So firstly... God's dealings on a personal level in verses 46 to 49. 
verse 46. It says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. My soul magnifies the Lord. Magnifies, exalts, lifts up. Now, Mary is not somehow saying that, you know, I'm going to make God uh, bigger and greater somehow. I mean, that's impossible for anyone to do because God alone is supremely great and nobody can make him greater than he is already. Then what does it mean then to magnify God? Now, I remember sometime back... uh, Uh, John Piper, he had a good illustration of it. You know, he said that there's two ways to magnify something. Either through a microscope or through a telescope. The one makes a small thing look bigger and the other makes a big thing look as big as it really is. So when Mary says here, my soul magnifies the Lord, she's not saying, I will make a small God bigger than he already is. She's saying, no, my soul is expressing something of the reality of how really big God is already. See, it's like with the telescope. Someone has seen something of the bigness of the thing that is far away and realizes how big it is. And so too, Mary has seen something of the bigness of God in her own life. And so she's praising God and rejoicing in God. She's just so overcome by the greatness of God that she can't contain herself, that she's overjoyed as a result. And here's just a small thing that I want to highlight here. See, God created us as human beings to worship and magnify the Lord. In fact, the reason why God saved us as his children is also so that we would be able to magnify him. But what happens is that in our sin, we seek to magnify ourselves. I mean, that, and that what we do there is more the microscope thing. Something that's really small, and we try and make a big thing out of it. And we can seek to magnify ourselves in, in different ways. You know, through our relationships with people. Through things, uh, you know, there are many different ways in which we can seek to make it all about me, myself, and I. About my pleasure, therefore I have this relationship with you. About my significance, about my comfort, all apart from God. But here's the thing. The more we do that, we don't become joyful the more miserable we become. Because nothing really satisfies. The more we focus on ourselves, it it, it just comes to nothing. 
But the more we seek to magnify God, the more joyful we become. Why? Because this is what we were created for. And this is what we were saved for. And I've said this again and again as I've gone through Genesis as well. When you have a product and you use that product according to how it was made, what it was created for, things go well. If we as human beings have been created, our very purpose is to magnify God. What happens when we magnify God? Things go well and we become joyful because we are working according to how we were created and for what we were redeemed. And then even beyond that, we are more joyful because our joy then comes to rest in nothing other than the Lord himself who is unchanging. So let's just not forget that this season. That we would not turn to relationships. We wouldn't turn to something else to give us pleasure. That it's not just about gifts and you know, family get-togethers. They're all good things. But ultimately, we would live to glorify God and magnify God. And that is what will bring us great joy. So Mary is caught up with the the greatness of God in her life. And she's overjoyed in who God is. And notice what Mary says in verse 47. She says, My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. In God, my Savior. Or in other words, the God of my salvation is whom I rejoice in. Now, why would Mary address God this way? As my Savior. Or because she knew she was like everybody else. Because she knew she was a sinner. Because only sinners need a savior. See, this goes against the false doctrine of Roman Catholicism that says that Mary was born sinless and never committed any sin. What you see here in the Bible is that Mary herself is refuting that. Mary doesn't view herself as sinful, sinless. She understood who she was, a sinner, and that she needed a savior. And she's recognizing that God alone is her savior. I rejoice in God, my savior. And let me just say this. Mary is not sinless, nor is Mary the queen of heaven. Nor is she a co-redemptrix with Jesus. She does not have the power to redeem or to save anyone along with Jesus. That is a doctrine, a damning doctrine. For those who trust in Mary thinking she can save you, let me say this by the authority of God's word. You will, it will lead to your own damnation. She cannot save you. She was a sinner just like everybody else. 
And what we see here is that Mary is a sinner like everybody else, but is saved by God and is going to be greatly used by God. Now, Mary gives the, the, the reason for her praise and rejoicing. Verse 48. She says, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Mary recognized her humble estate. She's a young girl. She's engaged to be married to a young carpenter boy named Joseph. She's poor. She's from a remote village called Nazareth that people despise. There's nothing impressive about her. In fact, she's very lowly by worldly standards. No one would look on her for anything. And yet, and yet, the Lord Most High has looked on her and has regard for her in her low estate. God has graciously looked on her with favor and has chosen her. And then Mary says, For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Now here when Mary says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, this is not in any way some sort of command to worship and bless Mary. See, Mary's blessedness, it's not because of some intrinsic worth in her, but it's because of the child that she was bearing and because of the favor that God has shown toward her. Her focus is still on God in all this. She says, God the Almighty, by His great power, would do that which is humanly impossible. That he would enable her to conceive while she was still a virgin. And that God would use her to bring the Savior into this world. And she says, this God whose name is holy. See, for the Hebrew mind, the name is always tied to the essence and the character of the person. So essentially what she's saying is, he is holy God. This is the holy God. And I've said this a few times before as well with regards to God's holiness. It is so much more than his moral perfection. That, that he's perfectly righteous. It's much more than that. God's holiness is fundamentally his other thanness. His distinction, his separateness from everything else. That if you have the comparison scale, that there is nothing on here to compare to God. That if God is the superlative, there's nothing even at ground zero to compare to him. There's nothing there. He's absolutely unique and separate from everything. 
There's no one like him, even in a lesser sense. He's absolutely holy and distinct. And if God is holy, then everything that he does is also holy and unique. His work is also extremely unique, not like what everyone else would do. And so that's what Mary is singing about here. That the God who is mighty and holy and does what is mighty and holy, that this God would stoop down toward me and look upon me, that I would be the recipient of this great God's favor, that I would be the recipient of his mighty and unique work, that of all the Jewish women from David's line throughout all the ages, I would be chosen to bear the Messiah? That someone as lowly and as significant and as insignificant as I am would be the most blessed of all women, which even coming generations would be able to identify. Why would such a great God do anything for me? Is what Mary is thinking. You see, she's just overcome by the greatness and the power and the holiness of God and her unworthiness. See, Mary never showed herself to be deserving of God's blessing and favor. Where she, she somehow thinks, oh, I've been sinless, I've done all these things, it's about time God did something now. No, she never elevates herself even up to God, let alone think she's the queen of heaven or whatever else it is that people think uh, these days. In fact, Mary would be appalled if she were present now to think of how she has been elevated and how people pray to her and worship her and think that they can be saved through her. I mean, just go back to the Bible. Even the early church never elevated her. You know, after Jesus ascended back to heaven, when all the believers are gathered together in Acts 1 verse 14, Mary is named along with all the other believers gathered. She, she's not separated out and elevated somehow. She's just one of the believers that were gathered along with all the other believers that were gathered and their names that are named there. She's not in any way separated and elevated in that sense. And it would be wrong for anyone to think of Mary that way. But what we see here is that Mary was indeed a godly young woman. And a humble young woman. She's knew fully well who God is and she knew fully well who she was in God's sight. And she recognized fully well how undeserving she was of this great God 
stooping toward her with favor. And that caused her to be thankful and joyful. Where do you find your heart this morning? Let me say this, as, as believers, one way in which we can easily lose our joy in the Lord is if we think that we deserve something from God. Some kind of entitlement. I deserve to be blessed and shown favor by God because fill in the blank because I have done so much for God, because I have served Him so well, because I've lived such a godly life. You know, you can put whatever in that blank and say, because of this, I deserve this from God. I deserve favor from God. Christian, if this is where your heart is at this morning, can I tell you, brother, sister, you have lost sight of who you are. And you've lost sight of who God is. And you've lost sight of what it is that he has done through Jesus Christ. That is the only way that our hearts would come thinking that I deserve something from God. See, the only thing we ever deserve from God is God's judgment for our sin and our rebellion and our selfishness. That proneness about magnifying, that microscopic magnification of self, of mini-me to make me into a mega-me. And so the only thing we deserve from God is God's judgment. And yet, God has shown his undeserved, undeserved favor toward you and toward me by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world as a human being to bear the judgment of God for your sins, for your selfishness, and for my sins and for my selfishness. Why? so that we would be made right with him, so that we would become his children and be blessed and given the opportunity to, to magnify him. Do you realize this morning, Christian, God didn't have to do that, but this is exactly what he has done in your life. Remember the pit the miry clay, the dirt and filth you were caught up in? Christian, if today you have a heart with a sense of entitlement from God, let me tell you, go back to the Bible. And think and meditate and read about who God is and how great he is and how powerful he is and how holy he is. 
and then think about what it is you actually deserve in light of who this great God is. And then think about what he has done for you, for you personally through Jesus Christ. And as you become aware afresh of your unworthiness, of God's undeserving favor shown toward you through Jesus Christ, may you be filled with the joy of your Savior. I wonder if there's anyone listening today who does not know Jesus as Savior and Lord. Friend, let me tell you this morning, no matter what you do in life, ultimately you'll be miserable. And the way you live your life for yourself will ultimately lead to your own damnation. But there is a way for you to be made right with God. And there is a way for you to have everlasting joy. And that is through Jesus Christ alone. If you'd like to know more about what it means to follow Jesus and understand more about what Jesus has done, please come and talk to me or to Donnie or any of the members here and we'd love to talk to you. So what we see here with Mary is that she's overcome by her unworthiness. She's overcome by how great God is and that he would show such undeserved favor toward her. And this is cause for her to be filled with joy in him. And I pray, Christian, as you think personally of how God has dealt with you, it would fill you with joy this season. Mary now zooms out. From what the, the coming of the Messiah means for her personally to what it means now for believing Israel. And really by implication what it'll mean for every believer. And here we come to our second point. As Mary ponders about God's dealings with his people throughout all time. Verses 50 through to 55. She sings again and says, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. See, what she's singing about is the fact that the way God has dealt with Mary is consistent with the way God deals with his people all the time. That all who fear him, meaning all who live in awe of God and seek to magnify the Lord, all who believe in the Lord and live to make his name great, are all recipients of God's great mercy, just like she is a recipient of God's great mercy. See, every generation, in every generation of believers, they have without fail not received what they deserve from God. That is God's judgment. But instead they have received God's mercy. That is true of believers even now and it will be true of believers even into the future. 
See, one thing to point out here as we think of how this is going to spur Mary's joy in the Lord. You know, sometimes we need to look beyond ourselves. We need to look beyond what God is just doing in our own little lives. Yes, it is wonderful. Yes, it is great what God has done for us personally and what he is doing. But it'll help us further when we see that what, has, what God has done in our individual lives and what he's doing, it is part of a much bigger picture of what God is doing. It's so much more than me, the individual, getting saved. It's more about what God is doing on a much grander scale to gather a people for himself generation after generation. And the more we understand that this is God's plan, this is God's grand plan, we understand it, recognize it, and see this plan of God, that it's not just about me, the one individual, but about God and his glory and a people for himself, it increases our joy. So why? Because it shows how much more powerful God is, how much more greater God is, how much more greater his working. It's not just me in this small section of Melbourne here. It's everywhere around the world. And it's throughout the ages. From generation to generation, God is doing a work. And I'm just a small blip of that great work of this great, great God. Doesn't it increase our joy when we think about that? I mean, it's, we see God big enough as we see our unworthiness and we see God's greatness. But when we see, hey, this is the great God, this is his great plan, his work of redemption from generation to generation, and I've been privileged to be part of it, a small little drop in this great ocean of redemption of God's glorious plan. How great is God? How great his work? It should fill us with joy. You know, in the next few verses, what you see here is Mary uses the past tense to describe God's doing. But he says, he has shown, he has scattered, he has brought down, he has exalted, and so on. Many Bible scholars believe that this is what's called as a prophetic past. Meaning that Mary is in a prophetic sense, she's looking into the future. And she's counting that what God is going to do in the future is so certain that she can speak of it in a past tense. It's as good as it's done, what God is going to do in the future. And I, I would think it also could be that Mary is using events from Israel's past history, just pockets of it here and there, and then pointing to what God will definitely do in the future in an ultimate sense with the coming of this Messiah. 
So this is how she says God has powerfully worked. Throughout the ages. Verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. See, one of the things Mary understands is this, and we need to understand this as well. That God's saving power for his people also means his judgment on enemies. Let me say that again. God's saving power for his people also means judgment on his enemies. Talked about this uh, sometime in the Genesis series, that, that, that salvation through judgment, one way in which God saves his people is by judging his enemies, and he saves his people this way. It says here that God will scatter his enemies. Who are his enemies? Those who are proud. What's one example that you can think of? Or you can think of how God delivered Israel from Egypt. Where he scattered the Egyptians and and drowned them in the Red Sea in judgment. And by doing that, he powerfully saved the Israelites. This is what Psalm 89 verse 10 says. You, that is speaking about God, you crushed Rahab. That's a reference to Egypt. You crushed Rahab like a carcass and you scattered your enemies with your mighty hand. And then you can think of even after Egypt, how God led the Israelites through the wilderness and how then God enabled Israel to take over the promised land from their enemies and how God defeated the enemies. This is what Psalm 44.3 says. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. See, this again, the, the conquering of the land, it wasn't a demonstration of Israel's saving power. No, it was a demonstration again of God's saving power as he scattered and defeated the proud, his enemies, and saved his people, and they entered the land. Now the proud here are explained as proud in the thoughts of their hearts, meaning that it's deep-rooted within the core of one's being. It's just inherent in that person. And you say, what, what, what's the issue with pride? See, a prideful person is someone who relies on self. Someone who does not rely on God because they don't think they need to depend on God. Oh, I'm fine without God. In fact, I would say this, a prideful person is someone who has got a big view of self and a small view of God. Or maybe no regard for God. The very opposite view of what Mary had. But that's that's not reality. 
The reality is God is in fact big and great and man is small and nothing. And those who fear God, those who believe in God, those who seek to magnify the Lord, they have the right view of God similar to Mary. Now someone who is prideful, they can have this view where me is this big and God is that small or maybe even not there. But it doesn't change reality. It's a fundamental reality of of reality. See, God alone is the supreme ruler of this world and this is his world. And he has set into place a certain order where he's the ruler of this world and everything runs according to his design and his rule. And when mankind does not live according to that reality and order, there will be consequences. I mean, think about it like this, right? A person can say, I don't believe in gravity. It doesn't change reality. The person can stand on top of a building and say, I don't believe in gravity, and jump off saying, I don't believe I'm going to hit the ground. person can believe that, but hey, there's going to be consequences. That person is going to jump to his death. That person is going to jump to his own ruin. Because it is just a reality. And the fundamental reality in this world is that God is big and man is small. It's a wrong view of reality when man thinks man is that big and God is small. And that's what the proud think. And so God opposes and scatters the proud. And here's the thing. The world will keep telling us, the, pr- the proud person, the person who is independent of God, yes, that's the kind of person you and I need to be, the world will say. Just love yourself. Do everything for yourself. Believe in yourself. Depend on yourself. God? What God? Don't depend on him. It's a thing of myth and tales and whatever else. You are sufficient in and of yourself. Just believe in yourself and live for yourself. But the reality is this, friend. This kind of prideful heart will only lead to your ruin and it will also cause you to misuse others. Look at verse uh, 52. It says, For he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. God's not opposed to rulers. In fact, God is the one who sets up rulers. But he is opposed to those rulers who think much of themselves who think that they are the ultimate authority, that they have all the power and they don't need God because they're the ones who will then mistreat others. They're the ones then who will do that which is unjust. One example of that in the Bible, Pharaoh. He thought he was God. He thought he was ultimate. I saw how he treated God's people. See, in God's plan, the one who thinks they are mighty will be brought down low, and the one who is oppressed and treated unjustly will be exalted. 
verse 53, it says, He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. God can even reverse fortunes. The rich often are tempted to think that because they have all that they need, they they are tempted to just trust in their riches. So I, I, I don't need to depend on God again. And then as a result of that, they can misuse and oppress others, even looting people under them. But in God's plan, he can give those who have nothing, everything, and take away from those who currently have everything. Mary gets it. Mary gets the bigness of God. Mary understands her smallness. He understands how God powerfully works. And as a result, she exalts God. This is what Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says. Thus, the, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me, talking about the Lord, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. See, the salvation God is going to bring through the Messiah will ultimately bring about all this where God's justice and righteousness and steadfast love will reign. And then above all, Mary says this, verse 54 and 55, and we'll end here. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to offspring forever. See, she she gets it. She gets that this is God working out his plan because of his great mercy toward his people. In fact, she understands that what's happening here is part of God's promise to Abraham, where he told Abraham, hey, you're going to be made great. A great nation is going to come, and I'm going to bless that nation. Really, that was all about his plan of salvation. That God would bring about this ultimate salvation in every sense for Israel with the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. And we know by implication, as we, uh, while Mary is focusing on Israel, by implication that it's not just to Israel, but that salvation will then come to all the nations. See, Mary is beginning to understand how big God is and understanding God's working here. What is happening in her life is just a small taste of that salvation that is coming forth with the coming of the Messiah. She's sure that with this Jesus coming, Salvation in its entirety will come to pass. So much so that she speaks of it in the past tense. Now some of this has already happened. For those of us who are believers, you know, we've experienced spiritual salvation. Some of it is still in the future and it'll come to pass 
when Jesus will come again. Oh, what a day that will be when Jesus comes to reign again from David's throne, where every wrong will be made right, every injustice accounted for, every oppressor will be vanquished by Jesus, and the low and the outcasts and the nobodies will be exalted. See, when Jesus comes and he brings about ultimate salvation, there won't be any more misery, no more hunger, no more poverty, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more death, no more sin. The only thing that will be there is God's blessings. The blessing that God promised to Abraham. As the hymn writers say, where God's blessing alone will flow as far as the curse is found. See, when Jesus comes to reign, he will remove everything about the curse. Everything about the curse of sin and death once and for all. And Jesus will have his people. That is what is coming. And Mary is saying, it is so certain I can sing about it in the past tense. See, after this, Mary's circumstances didn't change. She was still a young woman who was pregnant out of wedlock. What would, what would happen to her? She didn't know. Would she be outcast? Would Joseph divorce her? According to the law, if somebody was unfaithful during that period, they could be stoned to death. Would she be killed? She didn't know. She still was that poor girl, she never got rich. She was still under the Roman oppression. Nothing changed in that sense. And yet she chose to ponder on the certainty of what the Messiah's coming meant, of what is coming. She was so certain of that, her mind has drifted to that and her heart is filled with that and that is what has filled her with joy. Brothers and sisters, what is it in your heart? How do you feel this morning? Where are your thoughts? Perhaps your circumstances. Perhaps you're feeling the different aspects of living in this sin-cursed world. And, the, uh, and experiencing the difficulties and the pain that is associated with this then let me encourage you, brother, sister. Like Mary, ponder on who Jesus is. Ponder on how he has shown you great favor, undeserving favor. Ponder on the grand plan of God and how he's achieving that and what he will achieve when Jesus will ultimately come. I pray that this Christmas season, as you ponder on these things that you will prize and treasure Jesus. And it will cause you to enjoy and worship God and make this season truly about celebrating Jesus.
Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you that you provided a way by which we can be made right with you. And we long for the day when Jesus will return and set everything right and we no longer have to live in this sin-cursed world. Everything will be made right and we just want to live under your rule with, in Jesus' presence. We long for that day, Lord. But until that day, as you give us these seasons of life and especially this season of Christmas, help us to treasure Jesus and help us to live in the joy of our coming Savior. And it is in his name we pray all these things. Amen.